Ted Galen Carpenter is a senior fellow in defense and foreign policy studies here at the Cato Institute, uh, where he's served in various positions since 1985. Dr. Carpenter is the author or co-author of 10 books and the author of more than 700 articles and policy studies on international affairs. His latest book is Perilous Partners, The Benefits and Pitfalls of America's Alliances with Authoritarian Regimes. In 2005, he co-authored the book The Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea. Dr. Carpenter's work has appeared in Foreign Affairs, The National Interest, Foreign Policy, The Journal of Strategic Studies, The New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and many other publications. He's a frequent guest on radio and television. He received his PhD in US diplomatic history from the University of Texas. He's a contributing editor to the National Interest, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a member of the editorial boards of the Mediterranean Quarterly, and the Journal of Strategic Studies. Bill Richardson was a congressman from 1982 to 1996, US ambassador to the United Nations from 97 to 98, secretary of energy under President Bill Clinton from 98 to 2000, a presidential candidate in 2008 in the campaign for the Democratic Party nomination, and he served as governor of New Mexico from 2003 to 2011. As a diplomat and a special envoy, Richardson has received four Nobel Peace Prize nominations. He has successfully won the release of hostages and American servicemen in North Korea, Cuba, Iraq, and Sudan. In 1996, he worked with the State Department and successfully negotiated the release of Evan Hunziker, the first American civilian to be arrested by North Korea on espionage charges since the end of the Korean War. Since that time, he has repeatedly served as an envoy in various capacities with Pyongyang, including several times on their nuclear program, and even in 2016 in an attempt to win the release of Otto Warmbier. We are delighted to have him here to talk about an issue of increasing importance, about which he knows a great deal. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ted Galen Carpenter and Governor Bill Richardson. Thank you very much, John, and Governor, Ambassador. I want to uh, extend a, a warm welcome to you and uh, thank you for participating in our conference. You're a consummate diplomat. You're probably somebody who knows more about interacting with the North Korean leadership than just about anybody else in the United States. So it's a great honor to have you as a, a participant in our conference. Uh, I'd like to start the discussion with uh, a prevailing impression of the North Korean leadership that it is uh, reckless and irrational. And I'd like to ask you if the people who make that assessment are confusing uh, ruthlessness and determination with recklessness and insanity. Are they making that fundamental error? Well, uh, Ted, my first... Uh statement is thank you to the Cato Institute for uh, inviting me. Uh, I've been here several times. Uh, I will preface my remarks by not trying to be partisan since I'm probably the only Democrat in the room along with that guy in the kitchen. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but I think what bipartisanship is very important. And my answer uh, on that is nobody knows Kim Jong-un. Dennis Rodman does, 
one North, uh, one Chinese envoy does, but that's about it. So our assessment of him is is based on his actions, his inconsistencies, you know, his efforts to retain power, killing his relatives. But here's my assessment. I, uh, you know, you could always make a deal with his father. Uh, you release a prisoner in exchange, you get a high-level visit. You get some rice. You get some, uh, you resume this part of the nuclear program, you get something in return. Here's my assessment of King Jong-un. I think he's a rational actor. I think he has an end game. I don't know what that end game is, but I think what he's trying to do is get to the pinnacle of his nuclear capacity, his missile capacity, when he knows that his technology is good enough to maybe be able to hit the United States. I think he's waiting for that. He's erratic. He's uh, um, also totally unpredictable. You don't know what other power centers are there. I, in the past, know that the military's a power center, but we don't know if his military's to his left or his right, Ted. The party is sort of a power center, but there's a security force that surrounds him that has become powerful. We learned that in trying to negotiate the release of Otto Warmbier. So there are other powerful actors, but he is the supreme player. I think he has an end game. I don't think it's going to be the rug merchant end game that his father was in return. You know, you, we mentioned the agreed framework uh, where he wants in return, you know, nuclear power, where he wants uh, end of sanctions. He's going to want something. But I think it's more in the sphere of a U.S.-North Korea axis, I, I know this is shocking you, uh, that, that is going to be preeminent. That's what he wants. It doesn't mean he's going to get it. And he doesn't want the Chinese or South Koreans or, uh, or Japanese being premier players. So um, I think he has an end game. I think he's rational. I don't think he's suicidal. He has to know that a military confrontation with the United States it's going to be a serious, serious problem. But uh, at the same time, uh, he knows what previous American presidents have calculated, that you know the preemptive military strike, the military option, because of the collateral costs, may be too grave. Thank you. Um, the 1994 Framework Agreement, which dealt with North Korea's plutonium program, that has come under tremendous withering criticism from uh, conservative hawks. Uh, remember Sean Hannity had a segment a few weeks ago in which this was described as an appeasement policy apparently worthy of Neville Chamberlain. How would you respond to critics who contend that this was an appeasement policy that has utterly, utterly failed as evidenced by our current situation, our current problems with Pyongyang? Well, I would disagree. I wasn't part of that agreement, but I did make my first trip to North Korea right after the agreement when I secured the release of two American pilots that had been down. Actually, one perished. Um, and in my judgment, 
the agreed framework was a good agreement for the United States at the time. You know, in exchange for sanctions relief, and as I mentioned, I think it was two or three nuclear-powered facilities and uh, food assistance, North Korea would freeze their nuclear program. I think the reality, Ted, is for nine years while that program persisted, the North Koreans did not build a nuclear weapon in those nine years. They were cheating in some other ways. I'm not denying that. In the end, they broke the agreement because they thought the hostility of the Bush administration, uh, the policy was going to change. But no, I I, I just don't think it was appeasement. I think it was a realistic uh, effort that in the Bush years and in the Obama years, even though I think strategic patience did not work, led us to some kind of understanding with the North Koreans that would not bring us to the brink of a, uh, of a very serious military confrontation. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just add one more point. When I was uh, in, in, the Bush, in the Bush administration, the North Koreans came to me and said, we'd like to resume our relationship with the United States, uh, but we want to start with the remains of our soldiers, of American soldiers, because the North Korean military, which I think is a key in this relationship, uh, upcoming relationship, hopefully, was ready to turn over these remains in exchange for nothing as a goodwill gesture. They exchanged these remains to me, to Tony Principi, to Victor Cha. We made sure the delegation was bipartisan. We had ceremonies, but then we didn't reciprocate. We, the United States, in exchange for getting the remains. Uh, The North Koreans wanted us to resume a a military-to-military relationship uh, on remains, where they get foreign exchange for the remains, and there's about a 1,000 of them, but we didn't pick up on that. So um, I think they saw that. The North Koreans, well, the the Americans don't want to engage, so uh, we will continue hostility. There certainly was a change in the atmosphere um, between 1994 and, say, roughly 2006, 2007. Uh, I remember Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's visit to Pyongyang in October 2000, and at least the atmospherics surrounding that visit seemed quite favorable. You mentioned your trip, the return of the remains. Were there missed opportunities there on the part of the United States during that period? I think there were missed opportunities. Uh, There were on the remains issue. My view is that through soft power, through sports diplomacy, through remains of our soldiers, through through human rights exchanges, uh, Koreans, South Koreans, North Koreans, uh, those job facilities uh, at the border, you, you, you build trust that might lead to broader relations. Uh, I know the military, we negotiated directly on the remains with the military. They're key players there. And again, I'm going to go out on the limb and say that they may be to the left of Kim Jong-un. They may want some kind of agreement because they know they're not going to survive in a battle against us. Uh, So what I'm saying is with the Albright visit, you know, with the atmospherics were great, I heard. Um, I was a member of the administration. Uh, I was Secretary of Energy at the time, and you know the 
North Korean portfolio was considered very important. Um, but, but there was no follow through, and I think what was adopted was a strategic patience policy, that the way we move North Korea is more sanctions, more pressure, international pressure, and that didn't work. That hasn't worked. So something new needs to be tried, and, and I guess we'll get into that, but. Well, I think there's also been the expectation that uh, North Korea is on the verge of collapse. I remember accounts of that nature back in 1995, 96, that in a matter of just a few years, the North Korean state would implode much as East Germany did. Uh, that clearly has not come about, and I think we have to raise questions whether that was ever a realistic expectation. One of the other areas that has been very controversial is China's role in all of this. Um, there, I think, is a growing view in the United States that China is not only the key to solving the North Korean problem, uh, China could exercise decisive influence if it would only choose to do so. An extreme version of that thesis uh, came about, I think, during a, a tense period in 2005 when New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman said that uh, Beijing could solve the North Korean crisis with a telephone call. Uh, that really, I think, is the extreme thesis about the extent of China's influence. But how great is that influence in your judgment? Uh, and is the Trump administration being realistic that it can prod Beijing to do a lot more to pressure North Korea? I think China's role is sizable, important, but not decisive. Now, I'm going to explain that. Uh, and I will give credit to the Trump administration for zeroing in on the China issue um, as a new element in policy, which I think is, is positive. You know, on the criticism side, uh, the tweets, personal insults, undermining your secretary of state, you know, the 50 messages we have on our policy is not helping, especially the insults. I mean, I remember being in North Korea once when President Bush said that the father was a dwarf. And, and, you know, it, it's as if I had said it. I thought I was going to land at the gulag. Um, so those, those are, are not helpful, and, and they, they don't have any role. Now, I don't like the President of the United States insulted either. So, you know, it goes both sides, but maybe we've both been overdoing it. So I, I will criticize the mixed message, the inconsistency of the policy uh, on what we're doing. Hopefully this trip will show what we're doing. But on the China issue, Ted, one, I think that we have really gone to the Chinese and said, you've got to do more. And if not, there are going to be costs. What is good and what is new? The sanctions at the UN, you know, I was at the UN. We were doing sanctions on uh, Saddam Hussein. These sanctions, if implemented by the Chinese, because 90% of the flow of goods and commerce goes through China to North Korea, 
Coal sanctions affects their nuclear program and their electricity. Seafood sanctions, their foodstuffs, North Korean workers, these are sanctions in place. There's a cap on oil sanctions. If, if, if we'd gotten all the oil exports, uh, we would have, uh, would have been a huge difference. The, the issue is, are the Chinese really doing something in cross-border smuggling? I, I hear they're doing more, but let me just finish on the China point. Um, the only way the China pressure will work is full enforcement by China, and I'm not sure they're quite there yet. I've always felt, Ted, the Chinese like the turmoil that North Korea causes us in the region. They don't want North and South Korea to be more friendly. They like the mess that North Korea creates. However, you know, what they're provoking now, the North Koreans, is, you know, Japan may go nuclear now with uh, Abe, that's how he got elected. Uh, South Korea's talking about maybe more nuclear, more military. China doesn't want that. So I think they're starting to realize we've got to restrain North Korea. Now, the last point. North Koreans have said to me, let's make a deal, just us and you. We're the big powers here. It's not China. They don't necessarily listen to China. That's another problem. Uh, if China really puts pressure, I suspect they're going to have to listen. But when there's, you know, moderate pressure and there's cross-border smuggling and the cargo ships still have, uh, you know, some goods, then uh, the pressure doesn't work. But um, yes, but so I'm giving credit to the Trump people. Now, on the Chinese component, on increasing their pressure, public, uh, you know, the threats on China on economic grounds, oh, we're going to cut your put you on lists of, uh, you know, unfair trade, that, that's not going to work. What would work, and I don't think that's been come out, Ted, is if China continues their efforts in the region to militarize the, you know, the South Seas, more economic dominance, and we all of a sudden say, okay, you guys got to do that, we're going to increase our presence. We're going to do more with uh, encouraging uh, Japan and South Korea to get a stronger military. I, I think we mess with China militarily. Uh, that might work even more. I don't know if we've uh, determined that. I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying I think China is, is a player, but eventually it's going to be the U.S. and North Korea. And we got to get this talk about not talking. In other words, I'd, I'd spend time with the Bush people. They say, you know, having dialogue rewards bad behavior. I said, really? What, what, what are you giving up by just talking? Oh, you know, just give them prestige because we're talking to them. I said, yeah, well, you know, things aren't going too good. You, you might reconsider that dialogue. You know, I, of course, I mean, you, you, you're, I've read your books. I mean, you, you got to talk to bad people. You know, President Clinton used to send me out to all of these places, to Sudan, to North Korea, to Cuba, and, and they'd say, well, why do you send, why does Richardson go? And he says, he'd say, well, you know, bad people like him. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my sense in talking to uh, Chinese diplomats and journalists, uh, including several this week, is that they are really caught trying to do a very delicate balancing act. I think you're correct that to a point, uh, 
they were happy about North Korea stirring the waters, causing some angst for the United States and its allies in Northeast Asia. But my sense is they now believe that that has gotten out of control. Yeah. And they worry that the U.S. pressure on them is going to become substantially greater. They do have, as you indicate, quite a bit of influence over North Korea, but they're reluctant to apply that to the maximum degree. They're terrified of a situation in which the North Korean state implodes, among other things, the massive refugee flows that would take place. And many of the refugees coming north into China, rather than trying to get through all the minefields uh, in front of the DMZ between North Korea and South Korea. So this is a very delicate balancing act from their standpoint. And uh, they're cognizant of Washington's growing pressure on them to be more decisive. Uh, I suspect there is a fair division within the Chinese leadership on just how far they can push North Korea before they risk a a blowback that could be disastrous for China. uh, Ted, you're a China expert and a lot here. Is what I said make sense? In other words, the pressure on China from the U.S. is not economic. You know, they're so powerful, trade benefits, things like that. What I said about increasing our military presence in the area, in other words, not just not abdicating and leaving, but, you know, put some bases here, uh, not exactly tell the Japanese to stop there. We don't want them to have nuclear weapons or, or the South Korea. But do you agree that the pressure on China most effective from the U.S. is to increase our military presence in Asia or not? I think that's risky. I think the Chinese could interpret that as a threat directed against them using the North Korean issue as a pretext. That's the, the real danger there. I'd like to follow up on your, on your point with regard to uh, Japan and South Korea uh, becoming stronger militarily, the U.S. encouraging that. Of course, the, uh, the ultimate uh, power is if South Korea and or Japan would go nuclear, acquire their own deterrence. Um, President Trump, when he was candidate Trump, indicated receptivity to that. He has since backed away from that position a bit. But was that necessarily a terrible idea? Are all forms of proliferation equally bad or would changing the deterrence policy in Northeast Asia from one of um, extended deterrence, the U.S. having its nuclear umbrella over its allies and taking the attendant risks of doing that if something goes wrong, and transferring that to primary deterrence, direct deterrence, Japan and South Korea having its own nuclear arsenals. Would nuclear arsenals in the hands of stable democracies necessarily be disruptive and a threat, particularly when one authoritarian state, China, and one very unpredictable state, North Korea, already have those capabilities? Well, Ted, you stated so eloquently, but I got to disagree with you. All right. But you, you know, you're you're very eloquent. Now, you know, here's here's my here would be my, and I'm a traditionalist. 
the best option, <clears throat> I believe, the U.S. fulfills its commitments, its treaty commitments to Japan and South Korea. Uh, we, you know, we increase uh, our presence given the North Korean threat with, uh, with both countries and assure them of our uh, commitment. I, I, I don't have a problem with South Korea and Japan militarily. You know, their military is, is, is strong, but uh, having more validation, more strength. Nuclear, no. I, I just think the non-proliferation efforts need to continue. I think they're important. Um, but I think China has to think hard about wanting that. And this is where I see uh, leverage over China and saying to North Korea, look, look what you're causing. So, um, no, I, I, I don't want to see that. But um, this is why I, I mentioned, and, and this is risky too, how is China going to react with all of a sudden we put another military base? Uh, in, in the region, or we take a, a position on the South Sea stronger than we have, uh, the South Sea Islands, or you know, we, uh, the THAAD missile goes up and, and we decide to enhance it. I'm not too against that. Um, so, so I guess I'm, I'm not agreeing, but I am with you in terms of we new, need new thinking uh, to deal with threats like, like North Korea. And, and, you know, with Iran, I think we've made a terrible mistake by getting out of the agreement. We could have done the agreement and then pushed the Iranians on terrorism, on, on, on uh, American prisoners, on Yemen, on Syria. Now we got no leverage. I don't see what leverage we I, I don't know who's thinking this way. Uh, you know, and we were having a discussion earlier. You know, I've had a little bit of input into the uh, Trump administration on North Korea, very little. I'm not a player, but I sense that the generals there that I've talked to in, in the White House, they, they seem to know the risks. They're, you know, you'd think they're the ones pushing for this military. I'm not sure. I, I, I think they're trying to restrain their boss. <laughs> so that's my impression. And I'm not a player. I've been there a couple of times. We have... Um suggested alternatives to the current policy that are almost polar opposites. One being comprehensive, unconditional negotiations. We open up a massive bilateral dialogue with Pyongyang. The other is we seriously consider the military option, a preventive war, a one that has been described in some places as the decapitation strategy, both in terms of the North Korean leadership and in terms of Pyongyang's military capabilities, especially its nuclear weapons, its missiles. Okay, we have two options here other than the policy that we're pursuing at present. If we had comprehensive negotiations, Pyongyang's longstanding demands are things such as the lifting of all sanctions, uh, diplomatic recognition, uh, a formal treaty ending the Korean War, the end to the annual US-South Korean military exercises, and at least at some point, the withdrawal of all US forces from South Korea. How realistic is it to enter into negotiations when those are the demands of the other side, could the United States offer major concessions on those points? 
And if so, which ones should we concede? Yeah. When you negotiate with the North Koreans, everybody here has a very important role in your lives in negotiating scholars, press, everything. They don't think like we do, okay? I mean, you're, Ted, you've talked about some very rational give and takes, uh, quid pro quos. They don't believe in quid pro quos. I remember when the first time I negotiated with the North Koreans, uh, this was for the pilots, uh, as they gave me one of the uh, American pilots, they said to me, well, you know, you have to pay for the ammunition that we use to shoot them down. They were serious. This is how they think. And their idea, Ted, of a concession, you know, you say, okay, so you get rid of uh, no testing. And they'll say, uh, wait a minute. You know what we'll do with this Richardson guy? We'll, we'll give him more time to come to our position. That'll be his concession. That's their concession. So, you know, you, you put out a lot of issues, a lot of terms that, you know, in a normal negotiating, even with ASEAN countries or NATO or military to make a lot, these guys, you know, they're, they're in a uh, prism of um, a uh, cult of personality where only the leader's words beamed on television and propaganda matter. And they are hating the United States. They've been taught that. They don't have much, so they don't have much to lose in terms of sanctions. The, the regime, I think, is in politically not in a position that it's going to lose its legitimacy with its people. Um, their economy in some areas has improved a little. Tourism, you know, just we've known how good they are on hacking, so something's happening technology-wise there. Um, cyber. So look, I, I, I had to say that uh, because what you've put forth is very rational, very academic, very policy-oriented. So when you talk to them, and, and then again, you know, if you negotiate with a foreign ministry of North Korea, I think you could make a deal. I know those guys, you know, they, but if you take it to the leader and the security forces and the party, you know, that's, that's when it gets muddled. And then these poor diplomats, oh my God, you know, we gotta do this. Uh, you know, on the water, auto warm beer, I was very involved with a family trying to get them back. You know, the kid comes back in a coma. Um, thankfully, the State Department, the, uh, gets them out, send a plane. But then I said to the North Koreans, I said, come on, guys. I mean, you should have notified. Uh, you should have let the Swiss, uh, the Swedes in to see him, his medical condition. The kid is like brain dead. He's been that a year. And they said, well, you know, we kept him alive. Um, we didn't know what's happened to him. We didn't torture him. I said, well, he was alive when you put him on trial. They just don't see the moral clarity of some things. Now, all right, so what do we do? I mean, that's the key. And I'm, I commend Cato for doing conferences like this. And I read your program. You know, it's more focused on what do we do? What, that makes sense. What are the options? Look. Again, on the military option, every president, and, and I think this one too, I hope, I saw what came out by the Congressional Research Service. 
in a conventional war the first three days, 300,000 casualties. We've got 150,000 Americans and dependents in Seoul, 30,000 troops and then their families. We've got troops in Japan, 50,000. 25 million people live in the Seoul area that are vulnerable. Yeah, we would win a war, but there would be a huge cost. If there's a nuclear war, I, I don't want to even think what's imaginable. Now, that doesn't mean you just take the military option off the table. It doesn't mean, you know, like McMaster and some of these other guys talking Mattis. That, that's all right to say, look, if you, if you make a move on us, there's going to be a response. That, that's okay. But, but then I think, Ted, you've got to be realistic about what, what is exactly the diplomacy negotiation mean. You know, a lot of people go on TV, uh, let's have diplomacy and negotiation. Look, I say the same thing, but you gotta be specific. What, what does this really mean with the North Koreans that, uh, you know, they're, I think, waiting for us to make a move in, in the president's trip. They're go they wanna see what, you know, what he's saying, what we're gonna do, whether Mattis matters, whether Tillerson matters. Um, and, and so they want to know who to deal with also. And, you know, when the president says, oh, you know, Rex is out there negotiating, he's wasting his time, that, that doesn't help with the North Koreans. One time, I don't know if I'm diverging too much, but one time I was there in North Korea, I usually went 90% of the time with the approval of the government, either is an but one time I went with Eric Schmidt of Google. We went there because he wanted to start uh, Google an internet process there, that, that, that didn't work. But anyway, um, all of a sudden, the State Department wasn't happy with our trip. You know how the State Department gets, oh no, we do it all, all you outsiders stay out of Ford Pollard. Well, I went, because they knew me, I got invited. But then the State Department spokesman says, we think the, 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 the trip of Governor Richardson and Eric Schmidt is ill-advised. And I was about to get this guy, Kenneth Bay, out. That killed it right there. So when you undermine, you know, even I, who wasn't an envoy, the North Koreans wanted, well, who are we going to deal with? I mean, we, they don't know anything. I guess they hired a Republican firm to figure out how to deal with Trump. But, okay, so I'm going to finish. What's the dip, best diplomatic option? I think it's the freeze for a freeze. But let, let me tell you what I mean by a freeze by a freeze. In exchange for a dialogue. In other words, Tillerson and Rhee. Rhee, the foreign minister, is a reasonable guy. I know him. He's the one that says that they're going to send the, the bomb across the Pacific. He doesn't sound very reasonable to you. But I've talked to him. You know, he's a reason. I think you could deal with him. Tillerson and Rhee may be talking. Now, maybe at an ASEAN conference or somewhere in China. The United States agrees to those talks. The North Koreans for two months, two more months, no tests, nothing. The United States military maneuvers, maybe one of the overflights. You don't have to get rid of all of them. I mean, we've added a bunch of new ones, haven't we, Ted? Mm -hmm. You know, just, just something that for 30 days or 60 days you talk and you see how that goes and maybe start talking about other issues. 
You know, yeah, they're going to want the end. Of, they care about the armistice agreement. I mean, it's very symbolic, but the North Koreans are big on symbolism. They, um, they probably want a relief on sanctions. I don't think, unlike his father, this guy wants massive assistance. I don't think he wants uh, uh, food assistance. I don't think he wants nuclear power plants. I think he wants a certain engagement and legitimacy. The ego is more important than helping his own people. One last question. Um, has U.S. policy toward other adversaries made dealing with North Korea on the nuclear issue much more difficult? And I'm referring especially to Washington's treatment over the years of non-nuclear adversaries, people like Saddam Hussein, and especially uh, the action in Libya after Muammar Gaddafi gave up his nuclear program and the United States then proceeded to support a rebellion against him to overthrow his government. Uh, the North Koreans have specifically cited the Libya episode as the main reason why they feel they cannot and will not give up their nuclear capabilities. Have we made our own, undermined our own policies, made our own task much more difficult? The answer is yes, and I'll tell you why. The latest one, Ted, is the Iran agreement. I mean, if you're president of the United States and you don't respect the agreement a previous president made like two years ago, you, you decertify it, and, and you're dealing with, and Iran is a potential nuclear power. They don't have the weapons yet. Uh, and North Korea does, and North Korea uh, is thinking, well, do we reach an agreement with the U.S.? They'll say, well, you know, what's going to happen in four years in a new president? Uh, th this, this has been, I think, with uh, Iran, uh, and Iran and North Korea talk to each other. You know, they play footsie with some of their nuclear materials. Um, I don't know who gets more out of that one. But, yeah, in Libya they cited it. Um, I think they cited with Gaddafi. Uh, they cited, um, I think there's one more. So for us to say, okay, North Korea, you've got to totally denuclearize. Now, I'm for that. We all should be for it. And maybe we can achieve it with inspections in a long-range deal, maybe. Uh, and I don't agree with some of the U.S. advocates that say, oh, forget denuclearization. It's never going to happen. Nah, you know, I... Don't, don't give up anything unless you absolutely have to. I think you've got to be realistic. I'm more interested in the missile activity. Uh, we want to stop that, that research, that restraint on that. I want to stop uh, uh, some of the, the artillery efforts, the, the tension between the two Koreas right at their own border. And I think the key, Ted, is not just traditional diplomacy, not just, you know, the State Department's, I think people to people, education is important, sports diplomacy, you know, remember Nixon in China, ping pong diplomacy, that worked. Uh, the, 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 the remains issue that penetrates the North Korean military, I've been trying to do that. We were on the verge of doing that, getting some uh, Korean American uh, family reunification things. Those things are on the table that I put with the North Koreans, but you know, they're waiting, they're, and, and we're not that keen, so. Very good, thank you. I think we have time for a couple of questions. Uh, I'd ask that 
you uh, please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone to come around so we can actually hear your question. And then announce your name and affiliation so we know who you are. And uh, we'll try to engage in this. Uh, yes, please. On the left here on the aisle. You know, Bill Klein, I'm a retired military physician. Um, I understand there are tens of thousands of North Koreans who are working as foreign workers, labor in other countries. I also understand that North Korea is famous for the people knowing nothing about the rest of the world. What's going to be the impact as all these people go back? And then I, sorry, I don't know his name, but the fellow who was the number two guy in London who defected, saw him on C-SPAN last night. He points out that it's easy to smuggle in information, DVDs. The, the fact, what's going to happen when North Koreans begin to learn a little bit more about the rest of the world, especially these foreign workers who mostly are in dictatorship, but still they must be learning something. Well, the, the only thing I know uh, on the sanctions, uh, there's, a, there's a prohibition on those Korean, North Korean foreign workers sending money back to North Korea. China has to enforce that. So that's one component that might affect their movements. But yeah, I mean, they have foreign workers, uh, you know, with a lot of the people that uh, were accused of uh, disrupting the Sony picture were apparently North Korean workers in China. But you're right, they're, they're everywhere. They're, they're in Africa, they're hired by the Chinese. Uh, you know, they're a component that I think could be used for good and for bad. That's what you're suggesting, right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, but you know, I don't know, if have you been to North Korea? You can't go anymore. You. You're prohibited. Um, you know, the, you walk around and the people, they, 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 they look down, they look a little angry, but they move fast. Uh, you go in the subway, it, it's like, uh, what, what do you call that old program? Um, the X-Files, where it's like the 1950s in Germany. It's like... They don't seem to have a worry in the world, except you know they they don't have coats when it's cold. You go in a school, and there's no heat. There's no heat. You know all these kids they're bundled up, and there's little electricity. Electricity goes out. They they don't have much. But you ask me, are they suffering? Yeah. But is it sufficient to topple the regime or deny legitimacy to the regime? I don't think so. No. Another question? Um, over here on the uh, right. Ambassador Richardson, thank you very much for your service. I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, I used to work overseas quite a bit. It was actually in Leningrad in 1975, so I can commiserate with the idea of the subways and what have you. Um, one thing that I've been, I came to listen to today, and I'm, I'm hoping to hear it before the day's out, it seems like we already have the game plan, and we executed it in 1962 with Cuba. If we could just remove the excuse and say, we won't invade you if you denuclearize, demissilize, and I think the, the Chinese and the Russians would just, in fact, it was the Russians' idea. Can you speak to that? Sort of a big grand bargain. <laughs> God, you know, I, I don't think with our leaders, uh, Kim Jong-un and President Trump, that is doable. Uh, 
I, I, I know what you're saying. I, I think you almost, if we continue in these conundrums, if you do this or that, or you know the daily threats, and you know you're a rocket man and you're a dotard, and uh, that's some new thinking. Look, I appreciate what you say about some new thinking. I. I guess I'm too, even though I live in Santa Fe, I'm not here with all you big thinkers. Uh, frame that a little more. All right, frame what you just said one more time. What would be the deal? Say it again. Just wait for the microphone just one second. Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think it would just be a dotard versus a rocket man. I think the, uh, our opportunity now is with the visit to China and to Russia that we join with them. And the hammer is going to the UN and saying, we're going to do a naval blockade. Nothing but food and medicine gets in by sea. China says we agree and we'll close the borders. And then that's how we, we, we enforce it. And then we just make it very clear we will have the Senate ratify the treaty not and leave it up in limbo where we can decertify it later and we just say if you want your kim jong-un you can keep your kim jong-un we just don't want the nukes the missiles the biologicals the chemicals the aggression etc do you all remember when reagan and gorbachev met in iceland and for like one evening they both decided to get rid of nuclear weapons all right, and then their advisors got to them the next day, and of course it got canceled. You know, I. You know, you've posited something interesting. I don't know if it's doable, but but I think that's what may be needed. Uh, you sometimes wonder whether bureaucracy and process hint, hinders something broader and big. Uh, you know, I. I I'm not diminishing what you said. I, I don't think it's realistic right now, but you know, let's let's be clear. Cato Institute, you guys are big thinkers. Get some, get some options. Get some. You well, know, we're doing huh? that. No. We're doing that. I'm afraid we've run short on time, uh, but I want to thank. Ted, go one more. One more question. Ask a, Yeah, ask. I right want a woman. The center here. The, yeah, right, and, yes, wait. Yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you so much, and thank you for going over the time limit. I'm Geely with BBC News. My first question is whether uh, Governor Richardson will be um, available to speak with us on camera on another date. Um, I will email you about that. But my second question that might be of interest to our audience is, um, so it looks like President Trump may not be visiting the DMZ during his Asia visit, and the White House said the schedule is determined by the South Korean government. But I, we have to wonder why he is taking that unconventional step to skip the DMZ and visit Camp Humphrey instead. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on um, the significance, if there is any, and what kind of message it will send to the rest of the world. He, I, did, I didn't hear that, that he's going he to sleep. He is not going to go to the DMZ. Are you sure? Are you sure? All right, here's something else that I, I want you to think about, all right? Since September 15th, the North Koreans have not shot a missile or done a nuclear test. Right. 
right? Could there be some diplomacy going on? I mean, I hope so. Um, not going to the DMZ, that's not, that's not considered a provocative act, right? It's considered a positive act. On, now, you know, here's another issue. I think the South Korean president is on the right path. He was elected to have a dialogue with North Korea. He's got a constituency. That's good. But he's been stymied by our policy. Oh, you know, you shouldn't do this. You, the, you know, you're wasting your time appeasement. My hope is the President Trump says, all right, do your own politics. Maybe you can get somewhere. I don't know if that's the rationale for this DMZ thing. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an insider. You know. Why, why don't you know this? You're a reporter. You're right here. Huh? I just came in from Santa Fe last night. How do I know? Ambassador, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Great dialogue. Thank you.